Good morning, and welcome to the Cato Institute's sixth annual summit on financial regulation. I'm Jennifer Schulte, the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Today's topic is the evolution of banking. Not surprisingly, this is the first time that we've gone fully virtual, virtual for the summit, and we are pleased to welcome more than 600 people who have registered in advance to today's program, as well as the rest of you that are joining us. Being virtual certainly has some advantages. And we're very excited to bring you a full program today discussing innovation in banking and the role of regulation over new firms in the payments, lending, and other consumer financial market space. Everything will take place right here. Later, we'll hear an expert panel discussing increasing competition in banking, featuring Maria Early, Eric Goldberg, and Ron Shevlin. And to close out today's sessions, we'll hear a fireside chat with the superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services, Linda Lacewell, where she'll speak about the role of state regulators. To kick things off, we have a fireside chat with the acting comptroller of the currency, Brian Brooks. And we're very honored to have Brian with us today. He's going to be talking about the new entrance into US banking. As chief officer of OCC, Brian leads in the supervision of nearly 1,200 national banks, federal savings associations, and branches of foreign banks that altogether conduct approximately 70% of all banking business in the United States. As comptroller, he also serves as a director of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and a member of the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council. Prior to joining the OCC, Brian served as chief legal officer of cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, as executive vice president and general counsel of Fannie Mae, and as a vice chairman of One West Bank. Brian will be joined by my colleague, Diego Zuluaga, Associate Director of Financial Regulation at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where he covers financial technology and consumer credit. Diego's research has influenced rulemaking by federal financial regulators, including the OCC. He has twice testified before the House Committee on Financial Services and appears regularly in print and broadcast media. Before joining Cato, Diego was head of financial services and tech policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Before I turn the mic over to Diego, it's important to know that questions can be asked today right here on the event site or on social media using hashtag CatoFinRed. And we look forward to getting your questions throughout all of our panels and speakers today. Now I'll hand the virtual mic to Diego for our fireside chat. Diego? Jennifer, thank you very much. Comptroller, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Diego. Great to see you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, we just heard your biography, and of course, you've been involved in very many different areas of financial services throughout your career. And what I'm curious about is when you came into the OCC as Acting Comptroller in May, how much that variegated professional experience has shaped your agenda and your plans whilst at the OCC? Well, Diego, first of all, thanks so much for having me. And I really appreciate uh, everybody who's taken the time to have these interesting conversations today. I think um, 
bookending me and Linda will be a great dialogue on all these issues. So I think, I think you put together a terrific, uh, a terrific program here. I would say, and you know, we're all the products of our experiences to your question about my background and how it shapes me. And I feel like I have seen a fair number of things that were badly broken. I've also seen a fair number of uh, examples of markets working. And so along the way, if you sort of think about the things that I've done, you know, I was lucky enough to be part of a group that bought one of the biggest failed banks in the financial crisis, where you had a real sense of what could go wrong when you had both a lack of credit standards and a lack of adequate banking supervision. So I have a good, a good sense of how that works. And then I found myself working at what is the nation's largest financial institution, Fannie Mae, with $3.2 trillion of assets, which was a company that was managing 18 million mortgage loans and essentially the entire global capital markets for housing finance on an antiquated tech platform. So what I used to say there was that there was no more important company, but there was also no more risky company, given how slow and difficult it was to operate these legacy systems that were managing such a large book. And that at Fannie Mae was where I first encountered fintech. So when I started to realize that the thing that America does best are finance and technology. Those are the two areas where we continue to be the world leader. And when I discovered that the whole point of fintech was to radically take costs out, radically save time, and radically increase inclusion, my view was, why aren't we moving faster to adopt some of those innovations uh, at a time when the country needs them so urgently? And so that, of course, led me to Coinbase after that, the idea of we could radically reimagine the way that finance works away from our centralized bank-focused and Federal Reserve-focused system into a more decentralized system that does for money what the internet does for information. Uh, that really sort of blew my mind and changed my view of what could happen. So when I had the opportunity to lead this great agency, which is the oldest of the bank regulators, and I would argue, you know, in some ways, the most important of the bank regulators, the, the chartering regulator for the biggest banks in the United States, um, it seemed to me that those insights, which is, this is very important what we do here, but we can do it a lot faster and a lot more inclusively. That that kind of became my, my world philosophy, and that's what we're trying to implement here every day. Absolutely. And one of the things you did very early on in your tenure was to focus on financial inclusion. And in particular, you launched something called Project Reach, which is a community-based effort to try and increase access to banking and other financial services by underserved communities. Can you describe that a little bit for us? Yeah, for, for, for sure. And I really appreciate you raising that because I don't think there's anything more important we're doing here than this. So first of all, for your, for your viewers who don't know what Project REACH is, um, REACH is an acronym that stands for the Roundtable for Economic Access and Change. And the thesis of REACH is sort of twofold. One is we need to take seriously these allegations that you hear in street protests every night around the country, that there's something structural in our system that is preventing everybody from benefiting from the wealth creation opportunities that some of us have enjoyed you know, over decades and centuries. Doesn't mean that it's because of ill intent or because of its you know, overt racism or overt class struggle, but we need to take seriously the idea that there's something going on that is making it many, many generations after the end of slavery still very difficult for certain ethnic groups and for African-Americans in particular to fully participate. And so to think about that question, I brought together leaders of the biggest banks, leaders of the most innovative tech companies, and leaders of the most important civil rights organizations to help us diagnose what those structures could be and figure out how to, how to fix them. So, so the first thing is taking the structural allegations seriously, Diego. 
The second part of reach is the idea that we may be at an inflection point in this country where we're either going to convince the broader society that markets can work, or we may be on the precipice of losing our market democracy, which is very frightening to me. So I'm really committed to the idea that we're going to show that in rapid fashion, we can fix some of these structural problems and include everybody in the wealth creation machine that America has been for, for 200 years. There are a lot of parts of that, which I'm happy to talk about more, but suffice to say that you know, the fact that 45 million people, predominantly minorities, don't have a credit score, or the idea that 20% down payment requirements exclude people who didn't inherit wealth from buying houses. You know, These are fundamental structural features that are out there that benefit some people and not others, and we can fix them. And what I've told people is, we'll fix them in October, not next year, not 10 years from now. We're not writing white papers here. We're going to fix them, and we're going to fix them like next month. So the profile of the typical unbanked or, or unscored person in America is typically young, minority or immigrant, relatively low income, often women, uh, and usually urban living against the stereotype that the reason people don't have a bank account is because they're very far from bank branches. Uh, although perhaps in urban context, bank branches may not always be nearby. But regardless, these are people that often own smartphones as well. And one of the paradoxes about the financial services environment in America is that, of course, America is by far the most innovative country in financial services. But you have a large segment of the population, 8 million households without a bank account, 45 million people without a credit score, as we described. Uh, and they're uh, not necessarily fully excluded from the financial system, but they don't have access to a lot of things. Why do you think it is that despite the very widespread use of smartphones and the availability of all sorts of financial services on smartphones, you still have a lot of the people holding them not having access to things that others among us take for granted? Yeah, well, so, so the first thing I would say is part of it has to do with the nature of incumbent banks. So if you're a gigantic institution, Right. If, if you are a two trillion dollar money center bank in the United States, the impact on your profit line from serving lower income people or niche communities is very small. And, and so there's not a lot of incentive for you to reorganize your efforts to focus on those kinds of people that you're talking about. This is why I think fintech becomes so important, because fintechs are companies that are starting from zero. And for them to be able to serve a significant number of low and moderate income people uh, at, at a relatively slim profit is an extraordinary increase from zero, right? And, and, and so whether it's on the payment side or the debt management side or the lending side, fintechs have an entirely different set of, of incentives, which is one of the reasons I focus so much on those companies as potential banks, right? Is that if we want the banking system to include those kinds of, of people, then we need to allow the banking charter to support those kinds of companies that want to do a nationwide business with that in mind. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, we hear the complaint all the time by a lot of fintech firms that the fragmented environment across the 50 states is a problem and that they want to deal nationwide, they have operations or they would desire to serve consumers all across the country, but they don't necessarily have the scale to finance the regulatory and compliance costs of 50, 54 different regimes. Um, and you've proposed this idea of a special purpose payments charter for firms that don't take deposits, but they engage in payments activity and they want to do so federally. And that would give them preemption. But you also want to go further. You eventually want these firms to also have access to a Fed master account 
And that is something that other countries have started to pioneer. The Bank of England has started to give access to what they call reserves accounts, but it's basically a master account in the Bank of England to fintech firms. How important do you think that is to increase competition and, and access? My impression is that a lot of the people who don't want to use banks do so whether rightly or wrongly because they don't trust them or find them too costly. And so my argument has been that having different kinds of providers enter this system can be beneficial in that regard. Yeah, look, I, I think that's exactly right. So when people say that they don't want to use banks, let's be clear, there's only one kind of bank in the system today, right? That's a depository. Uh, it's sort of what I think of as the supermarket of banking. That's the way we used to talk about it in the 90s when Graham Leach-Bliley allowed the, the you know, consolidation and convergence of all of these different services. The truth is, and I, I've said this in many different contexts, the, the truth of the matter is people's preferences have changed over the last 30 years in terms of how they shop for everything, not just financial services. So in the same way that people don't shop at department stores the way that they once did, they're not shopping for financial services on the same consolidated basis. They want to go to a specialist who's really good at what they do. So you don't buy your computer at Sears Roebuck anymore the way that you did, you know, in 1990 or Radio Shack, right? You go to the Apple store. I mean, I've given this speech a million times. So people want it bespoke. They want the best of its kind. What I would tell you is the reason why a national charter for the biggest lenders and the biggest payments companies, and the reason that's important is because a, it unlocks the nationwide delivery of innovative services in a way that can be deployed much faster than if one had to apply for licenses across all 51 U.S. jurisdictions. And it also provides ease of compliance because we have a single federal law in this country versus trying to figure out what the servicing law of New Hampshire is versus the servicing law of Nevada or, or whatever. So in my view, you know, and I know we'll talk more about this, I think there's a really important role for states in this environment. There's lots of financial activities, mostly local in nature, and that's what states are about, is being closer to their people and closer to their citizens and deciding in that local market the kinds of uh, rules that they want to abide by. But when we signed the Constitution in 1787, we decided in this country to move away from the concept that our country was a loose confederation of sovereign states and move toward a direction which said, look, if we're going to compete with the powers of Europe, we have to have a big national economy. And the only way to do that was to have a federal system that was independent of the state system, which allowed national institutions to grow. We fought these battles you know, for 200 years, and it's kind of funny how every generation we have to refight them. But I think if we learned anything from Alexander Hamilton's era, it's that the importance of having a nationwide financial system with banks that can operate across state lines um, is, is key to our growth. And what do you say to the objection, which I think in, in very many contexts is, is fair to make, at least in specific circumstances, that if states want to go further in certain parts of regulation or consumer protection, that with a preemptive system and one that favors the federal uh, charter, um, that it would be difficult for them to, to engage in that. And that even jurisdictions that are large in their own right and that are home to a lot of financial services providers, that they couldn't do what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, the, the list of things that are wrong with that argument is so long that I'll bet we don't even have time to cover them. But let me just start with a few sort of top of mind answers to that. So first of all, th this idea that if the states wanna go further, they can be more protective and, and everything, that's a trope that you hear a lot. In terms of whether the states really are protective, and, and I mean, obviously we've learned a lot from state regulation. We have a ton of respect for our, for our uh, you know, colleagues and counterparts at the state level. But the fact is that state chartered institutions fail at roughly double the rate of national chartered institutions 
when they do fail, they cause losses that are far more severe than nationally charted institutions that do fail. So I would argue that sort of the track record there speaks for itself. The other thing I would say, Diego, is in terms of what protective means, you know, there is a diversity of opinion on whether a consumer is better off having a 12% usury cap or not having a usury cap. I mean, you could argue that having the usury cap is a great thing because nobody has to pay too much interest. Or you could argue that, man, when market rates of interest um, exceed 12%, credit falls to zero in that jurisdiction. So I come back to the history of all of this. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the 70s when lending in this country fell to zero because the market rate of interest exceeded the usury cap in most states. And what we learned in the 70s, in a bipartisan way, by the way, was that um, if you want credit to flow, if you want people to be able to buy houses, you have to let them borrow money at a market rate of interest, not at an artificial price-controlled rate of interest, right? And so at that time, you know, you had the Supreme Court and you had the Congress come together in the late 70s and early 80s around a series of laws that say, no, no, we, we want banks to be able to export their home state's interest rate. We want there to be preemption because without it, the parochial interests of individual states acting under the belief that they're protecting people are in fact preventing those same people from accessing credit. So if you believe as I do that more credit and more risk-taking leads to more dynamism and growth in the economy, you, you don't want credit to go away, which is what those kinds of rationing state laws tend to do. I could go on, but I mean, you, you get the basic point. I feel like we've learned these lessons before and every generation somehow we have to learn them anew. I can think of quite a few payments firms that might be interested in the kind of federal charter you've proposed. But something that incumbents often raise is the prospect of very large firms from outside the banking sector, by dint of the language of the Bank Holding Company Act and the specific exemptions that they're in, that they could secure such a charter and not be subject to the same supervision, specifically from the Federal Reserve, that regular banks are. Uh, to what extent do you think that is a fair objection? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, so, so first of all, there are plenty of banks that are not um, bank holding companies and that don't operate under Federal Reserve supervision. Just to take one big one, I would say Zions in uh, Salt Lake City, which is a top 50 bank with more than $100 billion of assets, is not a bank holding company and doesn't have any Federal Reserve supervision. And the last I checked, nobody's objected to their existence or, or a lot of other people. So I would say that first of all. Second, I think this idea that, hey, anybody who's not a bank today isn't a real bank, and so we shouldn't let them into the system. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Let's, let's unpack that for a moment. Banks are collections of activities that are offered to customers. And what are those activities? Banks tend to loan money, right? They tend to engage in payments. And historically, you know, at least for the last 100 years, they tend to take deposits. So if I show you a company that lends a lot of money, most lending is done in banks, but some lending is done by non-banks. What is it about the lending company that the banks are so scared of? They're in that business, right? They loan money and this company loans money. What's the justification for this lender not having the same legal platform that that lender has? And the same logic applies to payments companies. 50 years ago, 100% of payments activity in the United States occurred inside of banks, 100%. And today that figure is still north of 90%. But the difference is that in those intervening 10 years, hundreds of billions of dollars of payments move to these other platforms. It's the same activity that banks do. Historically, only banks did it. And yet somehow now it's no longer a banking activity because it's offered by PayPal. 
That I really don't understand. I mean, that is either an incoherent argument or it's a monopolist incumbent protection argument. But if you believe in competition and if you believe in like being treated as like, there's no reason that the same charter platform wouldn't be available for PayPal that is also available to Bank of America, I believe. And I have yet to hear any argument other than incumbency protection that, that really answers that problem. Sure. Regulators, I know, are normally very circumspect about talking about legislation, but it isn't entirely unusual for regulators to go before Congress and say, look, we need you to change this particular bit of this particular statute to accommodate changing times. Do you think in your position that will ever be required in the near future to accommodate some of the trends we've been talking about? I, you know, I, I don't think so, Diego. I mean, pe people have talked about, and I've even had conversations with you know, various members of Congress about whether it would help me for them to introduce a bill to give me this authority. Um, I, I've always said no, because if you've introduced that bill and it fails, it tends to imply that I didn't already have the authority. But what I was doing um, yesterday, just in anticipation of this dialogue that you and I were gonna have, is I went back to first principles and I reread Federalist 45 and I reread McCullough versus Maryland and I reread the Osborne versus Bank of the United States case just to refresh my memory and to make sure that I somehow wasn't forgetting my law school education. And what I remember reading McCullough versus Maryland, right, the iconic case about bank powers in, in, in American constitutional law from the year 1819 was this, right? The people remember the, the part about the power to tax is the power to destroy, but what they forget is the first question in McCullough was, did Congress even have the power under the Constitution to charter this bank in the first place? And the issue, which is just exactly the same issue I'm confronting with these charters, is there's nothing in the Constitution that says Congress can charter a bank. And so the great Chief Justice Marshall took that question on, and he said, there's nothing in the Constitution that, that authorizes this. And yet, there's also nothing in the Constitution that prohibits Congress from exercising incidental powers necessary and proper to carry out the powers that are expressly granted. And if Congress has the commerce power and the power to run an economy, that must necessarily include the power to charter banks. Let me translate for a moment. The debate about my power to charter non-depositories is based on the idea that there's nothing in the National Bank Act that specifically talks about non-depositories. But nor is there anything in the National Bank Act, Diego, that says I can't charter non-depositories. All it says is I can charter banks and the core banking functions are deposits, lending, and payments. It doesn't say that all of those have to exist inside of a bank. So it's left to the controller to make judgments about what is necessary at any given moment in the history of banking to allow the system to be safe and sound and provide fair access. It's the very same issue that we looked at in 1819. You don't have to specify non-depositories. You just have to say who gets to decide what a bank is. And in our federal system, the answer is the OCC gets to decide that. Well, that was certainly a, a very fruitful tour of 200 years of banking law. Um, but on the topic of changing times, another area you've been very active on is crypto. And specifically, I want to ask you about stable coins. Not because the other kinds of crypto aren't important, but I feel like we have been discussing crypto issues that are not related to these global stable coins much more than we have the more recent developments. Your counterpart in the UK, Andrew Bailey, speaking to a DC audience last week, said that stable coins needed to be treated exactly like commercial bank money. Uh, and that would potentially preclude some of the plans that firms have for private stable coins to be backed by sovereign bonds and things like that. 
I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on what the regulation of stablecoins should be, because they seem to be a, a valuable instrument for trying and addressing financial inclusion issues, both in the US and globally. Well, so I think stablecoins are A, critically important, B, underappreciated for their importance, and C, are as much about the future of the payment system as they are about anything else. So, so let me just try and unpack that for a moment. So first of all, I, I do think that Governor Bailey's comments were very timely and really important. One of the things I worry about is there are already in the United States several billion dollar plus stablecoin project currently circulating. And the bank regulatory agencies have said virtually nothing about the right regulatory framework for those projects. So I do believe that as a regulatory community, we need to form a view about what the right uh, sort of paradigm is for those projects. Personally, my view is that from a financial regulatory perspective, stablecoins are not very different from prepaid cards, traveler's checks, and other kinds of money transmission instruments. So we know what they are. But at the moment, there aren't any rules governing the kinds of collateral that have to back these stablecoins, the kinds of audit standards that would be required, et cetera. And I think we all saw from the blow up or near blow up a few years ago of the Tether project that absent that kind of clarity, there can be risks in the system. So I think we have to manage that risk. But underlying all of that, Diego, what I think the really interesting thing about stablecoins are is that if properly managed, they are fungible with and equivalent to their underlying fiat currency, except that instead of transacting on a monopoly or oligopoly payments network like ACH or SWIFT or the Fenwire system, they transact on the internet, right? And the internet has a number of features that are really interesting. A, it's free. B, it's fast. And C, it's decentralized and therefore more resilient than any centrally managed system. You know, we can't ignore those advantages relative to the system we have, particularly in a world of cyber warfare and in a world where our geopolitical competitors are, are learning that building these things can be highly valuable. So there's the issue of the stable coins themselves, which you raised, but then there's the underlying question of transacting on blockchains, which are really just the internet versus transacting on these proprietary payment systems. And I think that we in the US have a history of trying to build on top of rickety ancient systems, much like we did you know, with telephony and early cell phones, when other countries go straight to the end game of 5G. We can't miss this opportunity in the financial system. We need to get to 5G along with our competitors. And that does, I think, mean having guidance around blockchains as payment systems. So what the dimensions of that are, I don't know. And there are a lot of stakeholders and we need dialogue about that. But there's an opportunity here that I think we best not miss. One questioner asks the extent to which you think regulatory changes can foster private innovation that addresses the issues we've identified in terms of financial inclusion, or, or the extent to which government should plug that gap by providing some of those services directly. We've seen this come up in discussions about COVID-19 related support, economic support to households, and so on. You've been, it is fair to say, uh, unique or idiosyncratic among regulators in taking the view that private innovation can actually do a lot of things if only we let it do so. That's, of course, a very Cato-friendly statement to make in itself, but I'd like to give you the opportunity to comment on that. Yeah, look, I mean, I um, first of all, the, the idea that it's a radical thing for an American you know, figure to say, hey, wouldn't it be great to unleash private innovation? That wouldn't have been radical in the 1890s when this country was building it, it to its current greatness. So I, I don't think I'm radical, but maybe I'm a throwback, or maybe I'm just heterodox. Um, 
My personal view is there is a role for government and there is a role for markets, and we shouldn't confuse the two roles. In my personal humble opinion, the role of government is establishing frameworks and accountability and supervision, and the role of private innovation is to build stuff and deliver it to consumers. When you confuse those two roles, like if you expect the private sector to police itself, you're crazy. But when you expect the government to innovate and deliver great customer experience, you're also crazy. So, you know, when I hear people talk about things like, you know, maybe we need postal banking or maybe we need the government to deliver the payment system. I'm thinking if you or I had a choice, Diego, we're both sitting here in D.C. today. We could go and do, you know, anything we want for lunch. Do we want to go to the general accounting office cafeteria or do we want to go to P.J. Clark's? Um, if we need to send a package, are we likely to go to the post office or are we going to go to FedEx or UPS? If we wanted a computer, are we going to go to the IT department of, 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 you know, the agriculture department, or are we going to go to the Apple store? Nobody who can wants to purchase goods and services from the government, right? Everybody who can wants to get the beautiful customer experience on a price competitive basis with a wide array of choices that we all get from the private sector. So my view of my own role is I want to use the authority that I have to make that beautiful private sector experience available to everyone as opposed to consigning the least well-off among us to welfare offices and postal banking. I think we're better than that as a country, and I think we owe it to ourselves to make poor people richer, not to enlarge the administrative state in ways that destroys what made the country great, which is innovation and risk-taking. We have very little time left, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to comment on how you plan to work with the Federal Reserve on a lot of the issues that we discussed, because they are notoriously conservative in their approach to some changes, uh, but in other ways, they have been very outspoken in getting themselves involved in a lot of new areas and potentially, you know, getting government to provide certain services that currently only the private sector provides. I'm curious about whether you anticipate any hurdles in that regard or, you know, what the working relationship would be like. Oh, look, I, so, so I would say that all government bureaucracies, not just the Fed, I mean, my own agency and every agency I know has, you know, an element of, long-termism, you know, the staff will outlive the political appointees, uh, an inherent conservatism about risk because in the government, you do not get rewarded for doing great things. You get rewarded for not letting bad things happen. Um, but having said all of that, I think the Fed leadership uh, and, you know, the Fed is a bipartisan agency. And I would say the leadership on both sides of the political aisle over there are brilliant people who are very focused on big problems and want to do the right thing. They have a difficult structure in that they've got seven governors, and they have multiple Federal Reserve Bank presidents who are involved in their governance. It's a complicated organization, and it's a little bit harder for them to move as fast as we can at the OCC. But I've been in dialogue with Fed leadership about all of these issues. I think they take them seriously. My guess is that they're going to want to observe our payment banks for a period of time before making judgments about whether they can safely connect to the Fed payment rails. But at the same time, as I say, there are other payment rails too, blockchains being among them. My guess is that our payments banks will benefit from a charter even one in two years before the Fed decides that they're safe to connect. So we'll have that dialogue. I, I think we have a respectful, highly engaged relationship that I value, and I think they value it too. Well, that's all we have time for. But Comptroller Brian, thank you so much for uh, your wonderful interventions today, your frankness with us, but also your willingness to cover a wide variety of different issues. It's been illuminating. Next, in half an hour, we will have a panel on the topic of increasing competition in banking, chaired by my colleague Dan Kwan. Please join us at 12 noon for that. And then to conclude the event after that, 
we will have Superintendent Linda Lacewell of the New York Department of Financial Services again in conversation with me. Thank you all for joining us this morning.